0: Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, You can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. I'm really excited in this episode today to be joined by Grace Coombs, a women's health physio and expert based in Christchurch. Grace, how are you?
1: Hello, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on. It's um, it's a lovely day in Christchurch today, so that's good. (laughs) Yes, it's beautiful here as well, and
0: I'm really excited to talk with you and learn all about what you do and women's health and... Um, women getting back into activity after pregnancy and all that good stuff so can you tell us a little bit about you and your role and what you typically do in a day-to-day work environment?
1: Absolutely so I spend most of my week working out of a clinic that I co-own with my lovely colleague Holly um, it's called Grounded Physiotherapy and I am there working predominantly with women of all ages in sort of helping them to restore their pelvic health really so um i yeah specialize in the women's health field so that's everything from i guess the boobs down to the bum (laughs) Um, everything in between is what i specialize in and and work with with women um sort of around and then i guess the other side of things is that i work a lot with runners Uh, predominantly female runners and helping them to stay fit and active and I really like it when the women's and the running combine and I get to sort of add both fields in and help you know maybe a postpartum woman return to running after giving birth or something like that. Yeah so it's a pretty cool, cool job I'm pretty lucky.
0: Yeah very cool and I'd love to get to it towards the end of the podcast but you're quite a keen runner yourself aren't you? Yes,
1: I do love to run. <laughs> um so yeah, we can definitely chat about that. Yeah, cool.
0: Great. And with the what you do as your role, that would be a very niche area in physio. Like is there how do you get into that? Is sort of is it just an interesting thing that you work into or do you have to do extra study?
1: Yeah so I graduated university as just a normal um, standard physiotherapist and then I have then gone and done some extra postgraduate training in the field of women's health so that can take anywhere between a couple of months and a couple of years depending on the sort of intensity and the detail of the, the postgraduate training that you're doing so Yeah, that's what I've done and I did most of my women's health training over in Melbourne while I was living over there and that was really cool because the women's health field is um, quite a lot more developed over there than it is in New Zealand. I feel like it's quite a new sort of niche um, type of physiotherapist still here in New Zealand and so yeah, I learnt from some of the best and have been able to bring back some of that knowledge and help people here in Christchurch.
0: Yeah amazing very cool and yeah. yeah I would agree I don't feel like it's been a massive field in recent years but then I didn't know if it's just because I've been a bit more interested in it that it seems bigger or it's just becoming generally a better um, a more well-known topic out there.
1: Mm. And thankfully it is becoming more well-known because I think there are so many women that could benefit from seeing a woman's house physio who just didn't even know that the profession existed Mm. so many women that I speak to they're like I had no idea that you were here I would have come and seen you Mm. you know six years ago if if I had known or I wish my mum had been able to go and see someone like you and get the help that I'm getting now and yeah so Mm. thankfully I think thanks to social media it is it is getting a little bit more popular which is great Mm, definitely Mm.
0: and with being quite a specialist in pelvic floor pelvic floor health can you tell us a little bit more about what it is and its roles and I guess what's normal
1: yes so the pelvic floor muscles are quite an intricate group of muscles they literally sit at the floor of your pelvis hence their name the pelvic floor and they basically if you think of your pelvis as a bit of a bowl they fill the whole bottom and the sides of that bowl And they have lots and lots of different functions. So one of the main functions of the pelvic floor that many, many people will know about will be the continence side of things. So often we are sort of taught to believe that if our pelvic floor muscles are really strong, um, we're not going to experience that incontinence that we sometimes hear about. Um, They are also our main sexual muscles, Um, which is really important, and they also help to control and provide stability of the pelvis in general, I guess internally, as well as support our pelvic organs, so like the bladder, the uterus, and the bowel. They're sort of helping to support those and hold them nice and high in the pelvic cavity. And with the pelvic floor, we can think of them as just like any other group of muscles in the body. So they function exactly the same. They can become really strong. They can become really weak. Um, They can be injured. They can be really mobile or really, really tight. They can become uncoordinated, all sorts of different things. And because of that, it means that we can then train and sort of rehab these muscles, just like any other muscle in the body, so we can improve its power, improve its coordination, and, you know, um, manage any tightness or increase mobility or anything like that um, that we might need to be focusing on. So it's a pretty cool um, and really interesting part of the body. Obviously, both males and females have a pelvic floor, the female pelvic floor is talked about a lot more because of course females have the ability to become pregnant and um, and then birth children so it is often um, sort of impacted a bit more than a male's would be um, but yeah really really interesting part of the body.
0: Mm. And mm. what would we normally expect from a healthy pelvic floor and what can lead that to become i guess to start to experience some of the issues that we would see with the pelvic floor like besides pregnancy being a big one what else can um disrupt that
1: yeah so really commonly the sort of conditions i guess or complaints that i would see in the clinic would be someone who might feel like their pelvic floor muscles aren't necessarily working in the way that they want them to because they might be experiencing something like incontinence, so leakage from the bladder or the bowel, or they might be experiencing something like prolapse, which is where we might feel like a heaviness sensation or a bulging sensation down there, or they might be feeling pain, and that's another big one that I see a lot of. So many females might experience pain with intercourse or pain associated with something like endometriosis or PCOS um, or just general pelvic pain that may actually be coming primarily from the pelvic floor. And so all of those sorts of symptoms would be things that I would be sort of looking out for and and definitely suggesting that someone would see a pelvic floor physiotherapist uh, for. I guess a healthy pelvic floor is a pelvic floor that is not causing any pain and not sort of um, causing any incontinence or any discomfort in any way. The pelvic floor can change quite a lot over our lifespan. So, um, you know, particularly when a female goes through menopause, we're thinking about really making sure that she is looking after her pelvic floor and keeping it healthy because with the hormonal changes that come with that, uh, we have to just um, yeah monitor her pelvic floor house, her connective tissue house, and, and many, many different factors there, Yeah, <laughs> without getting into too much detail. <laughs> well,
0: what, what are some of the, is it, how do the hormonal changes with menopause affect the pelvic floor, like what exactly goes on there, does it make it, is it, yeah, what, what happens? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so when we go through menopause, we have a sudden decline in estrogen. So estrogen is a really, really important hormone for us females. Um, it has many, many different roles. But if we're thinking about its role for the pelvic floor, it helps to increase blood flow to the vaginal and vulval region, which is really important for things like muscle health and muscle bulk, mm-hmm. Um Also, blood flow to that region helps with our natural lubrication levels, which is really important for overall pelvic floor and vaginal health. So, um, yeah, we really want to be, if someone has been going through menopause and we know that their estrogen levels have dropped, we want to be making sure that they are doing all that they can to keep their muscles strong, as we know that that muscle strength might be diminishing, as well as, um, yeah, just watching out for any changes to any symptoms. So if they were to start developing any incontinence or or pain, we might be thinking about um, alternative sort of treatments that we could offer mm. to help to mitigate that reduced estrogen as mm. well. Yeah.
0: And, of course, another huge factor that can have huge impact on our pelvic floor is pregnancy. So can you talk through what exactly happens from, you know, um, the growing of a pregnancy through to the labor and then the postpartum period like how does the pelvic floor deal with all that
1: yes the pelvic floor is amazing in the way that it does deal with all of that because if we think about it you know nine months of pregnancy is not very long for our muscles to suddenly adapt to this new way of living and then suddenly we give birth and they have to adapt in a whole nother way so it's pretty pretty amazing I guess Over the course of the pregnancy, as bub and as the uterus is growing, we have to think about the fact that that increased weight, particularly sort of down on our pelvis, is also increasing pressure and putting excessive strain, I guess, through the pelvic floor muscles as well. Because remember, they are sort of sitting at the bottom of the pelvis, almost acting as that floor and as that support system from underneath so they're under a little bit of strain Um, and then we add into that the fact that our hormones are thriving particularly our estrogen and progesterone which then means that our relaxing hormone that lovely lovely one that sort of just makes everything relax makes everything a little bit more floppy that is also thriving and when we have that combination along with increased sort of weight from baby we have to think about the fact that our muscles might be starting to get a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more stretchy, and we might just need to be working on the strength here um, more than we have had to beforehand. Mm. I get a lot of women come in when they're pregnant, which is awesome, just wanting to know what they should be doing with their pelvic floor, if they should be, you know, starting to focus on those those muscles, they've probably never had to think about them before, particularly if it's their first child, um, and suddenly are like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I know how to squeeze these muscles or what should I be doing. And I always suggest just, yeah, sort of imagining the fact that these muscles are having to work a little bit harder than normal and they're having to adapt to that extra load quite quickly. So we do want to be thinking about what's happening there and maybe practicing our pelvic floor exercises once a day just to sort of counteract that extra load. Mm. But then equally, this leads into sort of labour and childbirth is that we don't want to develop this really, really strong, really tight pelvic floor through our pregnancy that can't then relax and stretch to allow for the movement of bub through that birth canal. Because as you can imagine, that could also... um, and, you know, re- resolve and, ah, result, sorry, in a few issues. Um, so, yeah, we want to make sure, I guess, that the pelvic floor is functioning well, is handling that extra load through pregnancy, but then is also learning how to relax, how to stretch, how to sort of go through labour. And so I will often work with women on how to actually achieve the best relaxation and how to become really sort of aware and in tune with those muscles leading into labor mm-hmm. During labor, the muscles stretch up to three times their normal length, which sounds scary. I just saw your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that is part of the amazement of these muscles is that they can do that. I don't know any other muscle in the body that can stretch that much and then recover so quickly. So they do that uh, by the help of our hormones and and those lovely relaxing hormones that we've talked about and then generally within the first six to 12 weeks postpartum they will recoil i guess or return slowly back to their normal resting tone or resting tension and from there, we're then working on rebuilding some of that strength and some of that coordination and power mm-hmm. into these muscles that have, you know, over that time been through quite a lot. Yeah. So should... hopefully that all makes sense.
0: No, that's wonderful. And should all women who are planning pregnancy or maybe are already pregnant, is there a need for them to see a pelvic health physio?
1: I believe there is, yes, yeah. So uh, we call it like a prenatal warrant of fitness, basically. So sort of advising people to come in just for a checkover to make sure that they are doing everything right, that they do know how to engage their pelvic floor and relax the pelvic floor. We look at things like, Um, abdominal separation and abdominal control and how well they're able to um, stabilise through their core muscles which as you can imagine are also being affected quite a lot during pregnancy as bub continues to grow but also just general advice on things like how to safely exercise during pregnancy, which muscles they should be targeting and maybe what exercises they should be thinking about removing as their pregnancy progresses Um, and then yeah just sort of preparing them for for labor in the postpartum period so definitely worth seeing someone even if you don't have any specific concerns.
0: Cool Yeah. yeah good to know and of course in the postpartum period very important so I'd love to talk about getting back into exercise after pregnancy so how do you manage that with the woman you work with and when is it appropriate for women woman to start getting back into regular activity?
1: Mm-hmm. So, great question. Very, very individualised, depending on the person, as is with most things. But if we're talking about someone who has had a relatively smooth pregnancy and a relatively smooth vaginal delivery um, for childbirth, then we are thinking about for something like running or weight training, a minimum of 12 weeks recovery before they are starting to get back into that impact or high-intensity-based exercise. And that's just because it does take up to 12 weeks for the pelvic floor muscles to actually, yeah, sort of return back to that normal resting length and then build up the strength that's required for those sorts of activities. And saying that, though... Um, I have women from two weeks post, depending again on how everything has been, starting some body weight strengthening exercises, You know, starting some abdominal engagement exercises or body weight squats and things like that just to start to activate the right muscles that are then going to carry over into their running or jumping or weight training exercise mm. further on. Mm-hmm. Generally, I would see someone at six weeks postpartum for a check. And during that appointment, we would be checking the pelvic floor muscle strength. We would be checking the abs. We would be checking how their pelvis is, seeing if they've got any pain or concerns around leakage or prolapse or anything like that. And then sort of based on that assessment, building them an individualized home program that's going to help them work towards their specific goals. So some women are absolutely desperate to start running again at, you know, the earliest possible time. And I feel like I would be that person. <laughs> and I often have to sort of, yeah, you know, let them know these, these timeframes and give them something to sort of focus on and work towards during that, that first 12 weeks so that they can get there safely. Because uh, we really do want to make sure that when they do return to running or jumping, weight training that they are going to be able to keep training in that way and not have to worry about you know developing any new symptoms or worry about their pelvic floor health Mm. from there
0: and what about walking in terms of like can you obviously feeling good can you just return to walking within like a few days after pregnancy
1: yeah and again that's Super individualized so some women will feel great after a few days and be ready to go for a walk around the block or maybe like a 10 or 20 minute walk others might feel like they need a little bit longer and so I always encourage my clients just to listen to their bodies in that regard if they are feeling up to it definitely you know trial a walk and then just monitor for any changes to your symptoms from there often at six weeks Many, many women who have had a really good, you know, pregnancy and labour and initial recovery will be walking up to about thirty to sixty minutes quite comfortably at that stage, which is really awesome because then we can start to progress that walking in the second six weeks. Maybe we start getting them walking in the hills a little bit more, or cross training like swimming or cycling, or getting into the gym and using some light weights um, from there. But some women might find that they need a little bit of extra time and that's totally fine as well. So someone who might have had a caesarean or had quite a traumatic labour might feel like they need you know, four to six weeks to even consider going for a walk around the block and that's, mm. that's fine as well. We just have to be realistic when we're then thinking about returning to activity like running or heavier um, intensity exercise mm. timeframes.
0: And so I guess how the the birth went has a huge you know part to play in how quickly women can get back to activity, and that's going to be different for everyone. But does it also depend on how a woman's uh, pelvic health and like the big picture of things was pre-pregnancy, does that play a part in how it is post-pregnancy or is it all just to do with the birth? Definitely, I think
1: there's absolutely an element of sort of motor control and muscle memory. So if someone, was really fit and active pre-pregnancy and throughout their pregnancy, ideally, then their recovery is definitely going to be faster. Yeah, because their muscles are sort of able to remember how to engage, how to work, and how to work correctly. So that's gonna start happening from a much earlier stage in their recovery, as opposed to someone who they hasn't exercised leading into their pregnancy, hasn't really done much through their pregnancy, and then we're trying to sort of teach their muscles and teach their brain to an extent how to actually activate and support their their new body. I think that definitely plays a role. So uh, patients of mine that I work with who have stayed really fit and strong in the gym, or been to something like prenatal Pilates, or kept up their running through pregnancy, I definitely find that they bounce back a lot faster for sure.
0: Yeah. And can all women expect to bounce back eventually to what they were pre-pregnancy? You know, after they've had one or two or three children.
1: Absolutely, I think. Everyone, sh- actually, most people should be able to bounce back to their pre-pregnancy level of fitness. But I think there are so many different things that we have to consider there, because again, it does really depend on um, their labour and their initial recovery, and also, um, you know, their genetics and a whole bunch of different different factors that might affect that. Um, I also think that. It can be quite difficult if a female is breastfeeding, for example, for up to a year postpartum. There's no reason why she can't still return to something like running, for example, at 12 weeks post. But we do have to consider the effects that breastfeeding is having on her hormones. And you know her estrogen levels are going to be quite low during that time, which does affect her pelvic floor muscle health in a similar way um, to, to menopause mm. temporarily but it was also being shown to temporarily affect her bone mineral density during that time and just her ability to recover from exercise and exercise sessions and then on top of that we have to think about the energy levels so these women are suddenly you know looking after a baby or multiple babies they might not be sleeping or eating the same as they used to so it can sometimes be a little bit harder to get back to that same level of pre-pregnancy fitness, depending on, yeah, where that was. Mm. Yeah. And lots of different factors. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine everyone you see is very different in terms of the outcome. So probably hard to give quite generalized advice in something like this.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's why it's so, so strongly advised that everyone definitely postpartum book in for a, um, you know, a, pelvic floor and abdominal check because everyone is so different. Mm. We do have these guidelines that we follow generally, but they need to be modified depending on on the person. Mm. Yeah.
0: And when women come to see you for, you know, for a consultation, what can they expect?
1: So all consultations are an hour long, which I think is really important. And that's because there is so much detail to go through. So generally, if we're thinking like a postpartum consult, we might spend half of that just talking through how things are going, how the recovery is being, how the labour was. We talk about all things bladder control, bladder function, bowel control and function, talk about prolapse, we talk about sex. So we get quite quite close because we talk about a lot of a lot of things. We talk about exercise goals, we talk about breastfeeding, uh, you know what they need to be getting back to in regards to work, if that's something that they need to do, all of those sorts of things. So we have a big chat and then from there we do a physical assessment and that would generally involve a vaginal exam, which is an internal pelvic floor assessment. and that is is really valuable because it means that I can. Uh, sort of assess how well those pelvic floor muscles are engaging, how coordinated they are, whether there is any increased mobility there that we need to be aware of um, and, and, you know, all of those sorts of factors. We check the abdomen, so we assess the abdominal separation, how well that female is able to control her core and stabilise through her back and her hip. And things like that but then also just general strengths so what you would expect if you go to a normal physio appointment we're looking at your posture um, your hip strengths your knee control how good you are at balancing all of those sorts of things that we need to think about if we're thinking about an overall return to exercise
0: very cool sounds very thorough yeah um and I hmm. was, yeah wasn't aware of all the things in that so that's really good to know <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think from there it's it's sort of just yeah making an individualized plan really and and building towards that end goal. Mm-hmm. And I think for some people, you know, they might actually be totally fine from a pelvic floor and core perspective, but we realise that they haven't. If, if they're a runner, for example, they haven't run for a year. They haven't done any impact training through their pregnancy and throughout their recovery, and so then it's just. You know education around normal load management principles mm. making sure that they aren't suddenly getting into running 10 kilometers every single day even though they might feel like doing that we don't want them to get injured you know we don't want them to injure their knees or their ankles or their tendons or anything like that either mm. so it's looking at the whole picture
0: and actually during yeah. pregnancy what's in terms of exercise guidelines for you know single so not twins or anything just a a normal healthy pregnancy like what are the general guidelines around exercise
1: so the current guidelines suggest that all pregnant women who are having an uncomplicated pregnancy so there are some some times or some conditions that we wouldn't suggest exercising in but those that are having an uncomplicated pregnancy and have been cleared by their obstetrician or midwife Uh, participate in exercise daily throughout their pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And the guidelines suggest 20 to 40 minutes Mm -hmm. of moderate intensity uh, aerobic training and resistance training. So a combination of the two. Mm -hmm. And so that depending on your pre-pregnancy activity levels could be going for a walk every day and then carrying out some light body weight exercises or it might be going for a light jog every second day and going for a swim on the other days or going to something like Pilates or yoga um, or anything like that, just mixing it up but aiming for between 20 and 40 minutes a day. And the moderate intensity is really important. So uh, we use the conversation or talk test as the best sort of mode of of monitoring that and basically if you are exercising you should just make sure that you could hold a conversation with someone throughout the whole exercise session without sort of gasping for air or feeling like you're you're struggling to talk so it should be able to be a natural conversation Mm. with someone and that's just going to keep that intensity level at a good level Mm -hmm. and then we have to consider things like heat so just making sure that if it is the middle of summer you're not going out for a run in the middle of the day for obvious reasons and, you know, maybe timing that exercise session for the morning or the evening. But then the whole nutrition and energy side of things is really important. So if you are going out for longer than that 40 to 45 minutes, just making sure that you have the right amount of fuel on board for you and for Bub. Yeah. And I'm sure that's your, well, I know that's your area of expertise. <laughs> Definitely, yeah.
0: And although I did actually mention twins, um, is it correct in saying, like, if you have a twin pregnancy that's uncomplicated, are the exercise guidelines the same?
1: Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say so. I wouldn't change anything if I had a, a client with twins. I would just probably advise that as their pregnancy progresses things are probably going to become a little bit more uncomfortable naturally because they are carrying two babies in that tummy so they might just back off some of the higher impact exercises mm-hmm. a little bit earlier than someone who is just carrying one yeah. yeah cool
0: and is there anything else with what we've discussed with your expertise that you feel like we should discuss
1: Hmm. I think from a pre and postnatal perspective, we've definitely covered that. Um, the other big, big side of things is someone who might be experiencing, or, or sort of, um, yeah, experiencing symptoms from endometriosis or PCOS, all of those pelvic pain conditions. I think that that is also not it's unfortunately not known enough that these women can go and see a women's health physio and have really, really great benefits. So I think if you are someone who is experiencing pelvic pain because of endo or PCOS, definitely seeing a pelvic floor physio can really help with some of the side effects or some of the symptoms that they might be experiencing. Um, And then the other one that I just like to educate people on is that leaking is not normal. So I think there is, you know, people think, oh, I've had a baby, it's okay that I'm leaking a little bit when I run, it's not heaps, I'm just gonna go for a run and that's fine. Um, Or yes, I jumped on the trampoline and I leaked a little bit, you know, all of these things that we all talk about. Although it is very, very common, it is definitely not normal. And so if you are experiencing leaking of any kind, definitely go and see a women's health physio because it's probably a really easy fix and something that we want to be managing.
0: Mm, Great advice, Grace. And before we get into the next part of the podcast, just more about your awesome running, is how can women listening get in contact with you? And if they're local, you know, maybe come in for a consultation, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, so the best place to find me is probably on Instagram. We've got our Instagram account at grounded.physio. And from there, you will be able to send me a message or um, find the link to our website, groundedphysio.co.nz. And through our website, you can book an appointment online um, with me and then we can go from there. Otherwise, yes you'll know i've got my personal running women's house instagram she runs physio which i love it's sort of like my little side um side activity that i just love to sort of um, use every now and then to educate women on running and and women's health so anyone can feel free to message me on there as well
0: Yes and I love following your running Instagram and <laughs> following your journey recently was it last October or November you did the most amazing run which is the Alps to Ocean route in New Zealand um, can you please tell us more about that I'd love to hear about your experience
1: Yes it was so much fun so um, for, those, for those people listening who know the South Island they might know the Alps to Ocean route but it basically goes from Mount Cook Village all the way to Omeroo and it's a bike path, but my husband and I decided it would be quite fun if we ran it, (laughs) it's 316 k's, which is quite a long way and I have definitely never run that far Um, and neither had my husband actually so that was quite a, a, um, you know, something that we were really aiming to, to complete. A fun adventure, it sounded like, and we had probably last quite last minute, about six weeks beforehand, we were supposed to be going over to Australia for a 10-day holiday, and that got cancelled because of lovely COVID, and so we thought, now's our chance, we've got 10 days, we're just going to go and run this awesome, awesome trail, um, and so we did. So we got my parents-in-law to come and help and support crew us, which was amazing we definitely couldn't have done it without them and we basically just made our way from mount cook to omaru over eight days so it averaged a marathon a day with the longest day being 55 k's and that was actually the last day <laughs> um which is <laughs> which is just great so i'd never run over a marathon at a time so for me to do that every day for seven days and then run 55 k's was quite an achievement <laughs> Luckily, my husband is also a physio, so we were in quite good hands. If either of us did develop any little niggles, we could get onto them quite quickly. But, yeah, we just loved it. We took our time. We, we had this rule that we would walk every 5Ks and just have something to eat for a couple of minutes and then keep running and beautiful scenery. And, yeah, we had a great time. There was never really a, a point on that run where we wished we weren't
0: there so that's a good sign that is just, now we just need to find our next one yes that's so cool and so given you're meant to go to Australia were you training specifically to do this
1: no well not really <laughs> not really no which sounds really bad coming from a physio because so I shouldn't say that but I had been running quite a lot already I had um, prior to that I was supposed to do the Naseby 50k, and so I had been getting my long runs up around 35k's before that got cancelled. And then, yeah, we just—I just sort of kept up that sort of load, I guess. So I did have have some endurance under my feet or some time under my feet. And then we started really training for it in that last six weeks, <laughs> um, just sort of practicing being on our feet for long periods of time. Um, And maybe trying to back up a few days, you know, Mm. run 30Ks one day and 30Ks the next to try and teach our feet that they could handle that, Mm -hmm. yeah. But not too much.
0: And you obviously both made it to Omaru in one piece.
1: Yes, we did. We did. And we didn't really have any injuries. A few wee, wee niggles. The worst thing actually for me was my blister. I had a horrendous blister on one of my toes and it, as you can imagine, just, got worse and worse over the course of the week so that was pretty miserable but other than that we got there
0: so cool no I'm sure a lot of people who follow you including myself you've definitely inspired me to go and do that running or in some form but probably running as well but yeah just finding the I guess support crew to help and a few friends to do it with would be the main thing but what an awesome adventure
1: yeah such beautiful part, such a beautiful part of New Zealand that you sort of forget that you're running
0: yeah. I think yeah
1: so amazing
0: that's awesome and so with your running side of the physio work you do what are some of the most common injuries you
1: see so running related injuries tend to I guess primarily be overuse based injuries overuse injuries um just because of the repetitive nature of the sport and they tend to be lower limb injuries generally so that I would say the most common I would see would be things like shin splints or runner's knee so knee pain around the patella the kneecap or ITB pain down the side of the leg. Um, I really commonly see muscle sprains and strains like in the calf muscles and the hamstrings Bone stress injuries are a really big one. I do work with a lot of female runners and unfortunately, bone stress injuries are very, very prevalent in that population. So I do see a lot of that. And yeah, other things like Achilles tendonitis or tendinopathies of any kind are quite common as well.
0: Hmm. And yeah. what are some key things people can do? I mean if you're really active and running a lot there there's naturally going to be some injuries along the way but how can we reduce our risk like if you were giving out the best strength exercises all runners should be including what would they
1: be perfect so I guess yeah Ideally, prevention of injuries is key, and I think most running-related injuries are actually preventable because they are generally either caused by an overload of the tissue, so we've done too much training or we've overstressed a certain part of our body, or they're caused because we maybe didn't have enough capability or strength of that tissue so of that bone or of that muscle or of that tendon to actually cope with the loads that we're putting through them so they definitely are generally preventable i think the biggest if before we get on to strengthening i think the biggest risk factor for running related injuries is load so that's like volume of running and um, how intense or how fast that running is how often you're running, all of that sort of stuff. So how much stress we're putting through the body. And if we can get our load management right, we can prevent 80% plus of running-related injuries. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a huge, huge one. But then the other side of it, like I mentioned, is sort of how the body copes with that load. So we might have our training volume's perfect but we might not be strong enough or stable enough in a certain area of our body so like our calf muscles for example to tolerate that load or we might be in something like a state of relative energy deficiency in sport where our hormones are being affected our estrogen levels for example which is then going to affect our bone health, and our bones may not be able to cope with the load that we're putting through them and then of result in injury so lots of different factors to consider but if we're thinking about a strength um strengthening sort of um the strengthening side of things sorry then my key exercises if i had to choose a few it would be calf raises 100 percent. so single leg calf raises are key our calf muscles undergo so, so much force and load when we run. It's up to eight times our body weight is what we're told each time we push off the ground. So they need to be really strong. We want to be strengthening them on one leg because that's a functional sort of motion for running. We don't run on two legs at once. We're always standing on one leg and we want to be doing bent knee and straight knee calf raises. So that's going to target the two main calf muscle groups that we would use with running. And ideally, if you were to do a wee test on yourself, standing on one leg, you should be able to at least do 25 to 30 single leg calf raises on each side to know that your calves are at a decent strength level. Mm. It's amazing the amount of elite runners I see that can do 10. <laughs> like this is why you are getting injured. This is why your shin's are sore or your Achilles are sore <laughs> because your calves are very weak. So. Yes, definitely strengthening the calf muscles. And then the other big, big two that I would see are the glute muscles, so the buttock muscles. Again, when we run, we're often sort of landing on one leg, and so we need to have really good single leg stability. And very, very often I see runners who have been in the gym and they you know they've been working on their glutes they've been doing squats and they've been doing lunges and they've been doing bridges or hip thrusts and deadlifts but all of those exercises although they're amazing they all involve both legs on the ground which does not challenge the same group of muscles or challenge the muscles in the same way as if we were standing on one leg so definitely You know, strengthening our single leg stability by improving our balance, but also our hip strength is really key. So that might be things like single leg deadlifts or uh, really simply like clamshells or side leg raises to activate the side muscles of the hip. Or, um, you know, step ups or Bulgarian split squats, something where we're really targeting one leg over the other is really important. And then the other one is core. So core strength is also often not where it should be in runners. And as you can imagine, when we run, we want to have a really strong, stable trunk so that our legs and our arms can then sort of move off that. If our core is not strong and if we're twisting everywhere and not sort of able to hold ourselves upright, we're definitely going to be increasing our risk of injury. So making sure that there is an element of core training that might be like planks or any modifications of a plank, mountain climbers, side planks, so strengthening the obliques are really important. Um, and yeah, just sort of making sure that we've got that well-rounded trunk stability. Okay. Yeah. Some so
0: good moves in the air, nothing too difficult or like too much it's just a few key ones that are really important with the with the calf raises so I guess initially if anyone listening out there can't currently get to about 25 single leg calf raises that would be a great goal and then once you get there do you need to keep challenging with like heavier and heavier weights or is it a matter of seeing how many repetitions you can do or what's the best way to progress from there
1: yeah, so I always suggest that once you can get comfortably to 25 to 30 straight knee and bent knee single leg calf raises that we need to keep progressing because that's just body weight itself. So then we can either add weight, so that might be in the gym you might do it um with a bar on your back or if you're at home you might just grab um you know some hand weights or chuck some books in a backpack and pop that on your back or something like that and then see if you can then reach 25 to 30 calf raises with that amount of weight. I would just start small. I would add five kilos at a time and build up from there because we don't want to shock the muscles too much. Um, And yeah, aiming for like some of the elite runners I've worked with will be able to single leg calf raise one and a half times their body weight So that's quite a lot, Um, but that would be ideal, in my opinion. So, you know, being able to have sort of 20 or 30 kilos on your back and carry out a good amount of calf raises would would be great. But, you know, the recreational runner who is sort of running a few times a week, not competing at that same level of intensity, I would suggest trying to get to about 10 or 20 kilos extra, And if you can get to there, you're doing pretty well. We can also add speed. So instead of adding weight, we can add speed to our calf raises. So instead of just going up and down, we might try and do that really, really quickly. Or we might try and do our calf raises off a step where we're challenging the range of motion that the muscle is having to work through. Lots of different things, depending on the sport and the athlete. Cool.
0: Yeah, and strength training as a whole for the everyday runner out there, what's the ideal frequency of strength training in a week?
1: I would suggest two to three times a week. Two times is a minimum, Um, probably no more than three, Mm -hmm. so somewhere between two and three. Aiming for quite a well-rounded exercise program, so it doesn't have to take ages and ages. You could be in the gym for half an hour and achieve a well-rounded program. Um, you know aiming for some heavier weights where you might be working on power so squats and deadlifts and those sorts of things adding in some stability or rehab-based exercises so that's your single leg training your calf raises these sorts of things and then making sure that you're including some sort of core and mobility work at the end there, is that's what I would suggest.
0: Great yeah no really good to know and I'm sure a lot of people out there listening have gained a lot from that that's cool is there anything else Good. with the running specifics that you'd love people to know that I don't know you often see as misinformation out there or anything in the world of physio hmm.
1: what what could we what could we talk about no I think I've covered most things I quite like to keep it quite simple mm. I just don't think that it needs to be really fancy or really exciting it's purely just Monitor your loads, you know, make sure that you're not shocking your body by increasing your volume really quickly or increasing the intensity really quickly. Keep your muscles and your tendons happy. Um, Look after your energy levels. So, you know, make sure that you are eating enough and recovering well, sleeping well, and just seeking professional advice if you notice any changes to how you're feeling, Mm -hmm. either energy-wise or, you know, if you're starting to notice any niggles that aren't. Going away, getting onto those really quickly.
0: Really good. Yeah. And you personally, do you have anything? I mean, I know COVID's in the mixture, but is there anything you're working towards longer term with your own running?
1: Do you know what? I, at the moment, I'm not signed up for any races or anything. I'm just quite enjoying running. And I'm one of those people that actually don't really enjoy racing. I just really love training. And so at the moment I'm training, but not for anything in particular. I think I might do the Naseby 50K in August that got cancelled last year. Um, and, yeah, Sam, my husband and I were just talking about perhaps teeing up running the Hefe track in the next wee while, just for fun, <laughs> not as part of a competition, Um So, yeah, we just need to find the time to do that.
0: Oh, that would be great. Yes. And would you do it in a single day or over a couple?
1: Well, we were just discussing this. I think if we do it over two days, we would have to run with our sleeping bags and things like that, which has its own issues. Um, But one day it would be 80K. So I think, you know, if we trained for it, we could potentially do it in one day. Otherwise, yeah, a couple of days, take our time. It would be quite fun.
0: Sounds way more simple to do it in one.
1: <laughs> yes, but quite a lot. Quite, quite a lot, lot of way. stress on, on the old feet.
0: <laughs> yeah. oh, that's really good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Grace. It's been really interesting to talk to you, actually, and I've uh, learnt a lot. So thank you, and I'm sure everyone listening will um, gain a lot from all your knowledge as well. Good. I'm really I'm really glad. Thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks, Grace. See ya.